about doubt and faith and the relationship of doubt and faith to wisdom. I'd like to um, complete a little circle of understanding by repeating the poem that I began the retreat with by William Butler Yeats. He said, come away, O human child, to the waters and the wild, with a fairy hand in hand, for the world's more full of weeping than you can understand. When we, as, a, as human children, come into the world, as Stephen and I have been talking about, we come into this world with very, very open but we don't have the wisdom to cope with this kind of openness. And so, as we grow up, we learn defenses to cope with this world, this world full of the many joys and sorrows. Hopefully, we're somewhat guided into the world of conventional reality, into the world of form, into the world of adults, um, by adults. This form and structure that we learn, this conventional reality, gives us a sense of security in the world. It gives us a sense of safety from which to explore the world from. By conventional reality, I mean that we learn that that sound we call bell, or that that's a light and that it's bright, or this is what we call Stephen or Michelle. You know, we learn to separate objects and to call them names, give them form. This security, this way of functioning in the world is really important for a child children aren't meant to skip this, to jump into the absolute reality of things. We're meant to go through this process of going from openness, no form, no wisdom, child, conventional reality, and then hopefully we don't get stuck there, get imprisoned there by the sense of separate self, and grow into something much deeper So, come away, O human child, with a fairy to the waters and the wild, for the world's more full of weeping than you can understand. A child comes into the world with this innocence, this innocent kind of trust, but they don't understand suffering. You know, a child's psyche is too soft to try to develop <coughs> any understanding about the world of unpleasantness, pain, sorrow. As a child moves into the world of adulthood, and then through adulthood, we need to develop the inner strength to gradually start to face this world as it really is 
to face the pain, to face the suffering, to face the sorrow, as well as the pleasure, the horrors, as well as the joys. Finding some context for understanding the pain in our lives and in the world means facing this world just as it is, life as it flows, and then coming to understand it from that meeting with it without the defense. There are deeper and deeper levels of reality that we can understand from doing that over and over again, facing life just as it is. Yet it's no easy task. There's so many layers to the onion to unpeel. Plus, (laughs) our minds are formidable opponents, as you have gotten glimpses of. Most of humanity chooses to flow downstream, not to do the hard work necessary to save themselves. The Buddha said that very few people will choose to go upstream. The Buddha, when the Buddha was enlightened, he put his hand on Mother Earth as a witness to his full and complete awakening. He didn't want to teach. He felt there were so few people who could understand suffering, who could understand dukkha, and how to be free from that suffering, how to end dukkha. Yet, he saw that there were a few people as he scanned the world, that had just a bit of dust in their eyes, who, who, with some kind of teaching or with some kind of guidance, could see, could understand suffering and the ending of suffering. So the Buddha did decide to teach, even though he knew that most of humanity wouldn't be able to face that profundity of suffering, to make the effort to go through that unlayering of the onion. It's said that the Buddha was omniscient, but that he only chose to talk about what would be useful for human beings to free themselves from suffering. Deciding to walk the spiritual path It's not a joke. It's not easy. When a person decides to walk on the spiritual path, it's a sign that one's ready for the adventure of life, for the adventure of becoming awake while still alive. There's a Native American tradition that a saying from that tradition is, put your feet down with pollen. Pollen here means being fertile with spirit. Put your feet down with pollen means being mindful of each step, being with each breath, being with each storm, with spirit, with this awareness, 
And this is our great challenge because actually life and objects are moving so quickly. The change is happening so quickly. You've probably seen how a pleasant feeling can all too quickly change to an unpleasant feeling in the blink of an eye. And the slightest thing can throw us off this tightrope of mindfulness. The quieter that one is, the more one notices how easy it is to lose this thread of mindfulness. In one moment, we can go from feeling at home, complete, to homeless, lost, from being awake to asleep. For example, in one sitting, say it's going smoothly, and then you start noticing these sensations in the lower back, maybe. (laughs) And they're very, you keep noticing that they're very intense sensations. And you're noticing them very purely as burning or stabbing or throbbing. There's no me, no pain, just this purity of sensation that's arising and passing. But the next moment may be, oh no, not this lower back pain again. I can't stand it. Another moment. But that can happen like that. You know, from being very open to it, to aversion, to the unpleasantness. That's how we lose our balance so quickly. Because opening to each moment is such a delicate process, because walking the spiritual path is like swimming upstream when most of humanity is gaily flowing, <laughs> floating downstream, <laughs> it can get quite discouraging at times. So that's why I chose to talk about doubt and faith tonight. Sometimes you may notice that you have a thought like, I haven't had any concentration since the teachers mentioned it last week. Or, (laughs) I was more mindful when I came to the retreat than right now. Or, sometimes it's a little more subtle than that, like, Nothing's happening. Nothing's been (laughs) happening for a week. Or the ups and downs are worse than ever, you know, so much for equanimity. Or I'm just wasting my time here. I'm thinking more than ever. I sure wish I could go deeper. I'm stuck. (laughs) These are all doubting thoughts. They're just doubt. The more we're mindful, the more we will actually see how we're not that attentive. We'll, we'll see more and more clearly that wandering mind. And you may think that you're less aware right now than ever, but you're actually more awake than ever. I've described this already, but I just wanted to mention it um, with a lot of enthusiasm. The first way to work with doubt is to look at your attitude about your own practice and about the mindfulness. What I've seen 
has shifted for myself and other people that I see who meditate for over a period of years is this shift in attitude. So that if you focus on how many times you've gone off, <laughs> it's really, you know, leads to these kind of thoughts of doubt. Uh, but if you focus on the moment when you come back and you go, oh, my great friend mindfulness, you know, <laughs> I remember you. you know, and you feel happy that it's back again, that you're not lost again, that you're home. Um, instead of bludgeoning yourself mercilessly, um, there's this happiness <laughs> that comes from the mindfulness. There's a kind of gratitude in that moment that's very fulfilling. What can happen from this shift in focus or shift in attitude is that there's more and more commitment to come back to the present moment. Now that's what I see change. It's not that you focus on how much you've been gone, but over time, if you keep being happy whenever you come back, and that's enough, the commitment to keep coming back will deepen, and then the faith will deepen. You'll see the happiness that comes from being in the present moment, and the faith will deepen from that happiness. Mm or contentment. Sometimes yogis, even in their very first retreat, will have a glimpse of a very deep sense of contentment and peace that will come from being in the present moment. It's so (coughs) profound. There's a simplicity in it, but it's so powerful and so profound. It's like we have come home. And we've been touched very deeply in that moment by the universe. And it could just be a moment in one retreat that this happens. But it's such powerful medicine, it's so strong, that it brings a person back to do this again. (laughs) And, you know, it's really difficult, as you can all um, attest to. So this taste of the truth, even if it's one moment, is so nourishing so complete that it keeps us going even when it's dark and difficult, when we feel homeless. Whenever we feel that we've been overwhelmed by something, say we've been overwhelmed by craving for something pleasurable, or we've been overwhelmed by fear, overwhelmed by sleepiness, overwhelmed by doubt, often doubt will arise. Self-doubt, doubt in the teachers, doubt in the teaching. When we become overwhelmed by any kind of difficulty, then we'll have less faith in ourselves in the practice, or in life. Often, too much thinking will start happening or reasoning with this because we haven't seen the process clearly of how the doubt has happened. We believe the doubting thoughts, um, which brings about more doubt. The second way I'm going to suggest to work with doubt is to treat it as a recipe. So 
So it's pretty simple if any of you have done any cooking, if you take some flour, sugar, eggs, salt, cocoa, <laughs> chocolate, <laughs> um, and you mix it together, you get a cake if you cook it. Um, if you take a little discontent, a little fear, a little sleepiness, <laughs> a little anger, whatever, <laughs> you're going to get doubt. And the ingredients will often change. <laughs> you might have an apple cake rather than a chocolate cake, but it's doubt. It's, um, it might be that it's um, anger <laughs> and no mindfulness rather than sleepiness or boredom, whatever. There can be different ingredients, but we'll get doubt if we're not aware of how the recipe happens. When the excessive thinking occurs, like maybe I should go home, <laughs> or all the variations on that theme, um, it will eventually lead to an exhaustion of mind and an indecisiveness. Doubt is considered to be very insidious to our practice because if we believe the doubting thoughts and they take over, we can't practice. We get paralyzed. The mindfulness will slacken. There's less and less commitment, so there's less mindfulness happening. And the mindfulness is the medicine. So no insight will be occurring, and <laughs> we'll get overwhelmed by more and more things, and there'll be more and more doubt. Lack of commitment brings hesitancy, drawing back, ineffectiveness. One way you could see being on a retreat is doing nothing with full commitment. <laughs> the arising of doubt is very often connected with the feeling that nothing is happening. It's this kind of boredom, you know, this a kind of wanting something deeper, something more. And we often make an interpretation about ourselves and our practice in relationship to this landscape that nothing's happening, the nothing happening, the nothing is happening time. We interpret that when we think that nothing is happening, that we're no good at the practice. You know, I'm failing at this one too. <laughs> or that something's wrong with the practice. The kind of thoughts that can occur are, I can't do this. Um, I hate myself. I hate everything. <laughs> I'll never get it. Am I working hard enough? The teachers aren't very good. This practice isn't for me. Now, these are all, again, this is too hard. If we believe these thoughts, doubt enables us to use the practice against ourselves. We think that we're never where we want to be, and this dries out our hearts. Rigidity paralysis occurs. We get further and further away from home. 
have become overwhelmed by doubt, it can be helpful to reflect on what was happening before the doubt occurs. So I'm suggesting a kind of reflection where you look back, actually, and see the recipe. You'll usually find that it's coming from some kind of dissatisfaction with what's going on or what was going on. And we don't like what was happening. If one doesn't see this clearly, the doubt can lead to hopelessness or a feeling that it's impossible or a feeling of defeat. One doesn't have to take the nothing's happening times personally. It's just like noting hearing or seeing or anger or fear. It's, oh, it's the nothing's happening time. Great. It's another landscape to learn how to maneuver through, like fog or anything. We can keep going no matter what through these times if one can know that it's just out. It's not personal. One other method besides one's attitude or a recipe is um, learning to not identify with the, with the doubting thoughts themselves. So say the thought comes through, I can't do this, or this is too hard, or I want to go home. Um, you can insert a thought like, the sky is blue, or the rug is red, or the wall is brown. You can insert a very you know, neutral kind of thought that can wake you up, that these are just thoughts. You know, and then you're getting fooled by the content of that thought. You can try it and see how it works. (laughs) The sky is blue is (laughs) a good one. Um, If you feel fairly mindful, I would suggest trying to note the intention behind the thought process itself. Because if you get involved in looking at the thought process itself that carefully, and are looking for the intention before the thoughts, you'll get so um, <laughs> lost in looking at it that you'll forget about the doubt. <laughs> and it'll, it'll, if you look that closely, it often cuts through the process altogether because you'll see that they're just thoughts and they're not personal and you don't have to believe those particular thoughts any more than you would the sky is blue or it's raining or whatever. They're just thoughts and you have no control over them. They'll just, they just flow in and out. Learning to work with doubt is really important whether we're on retreat or off retreat because self-doubt does create that kind of paralysis that I'm talking about. It's a kind of killer of existence. Over the initial years of my practice, I had difficulty with the sound of the ticking of my clock. So I wanted to tell you a story about that. An unpleasant feeling would always arise whenever um, I would hear the sound of my clock. 
And then there would be aversion to the unpleasantness, and I would get really overwhelmed by this particular sound and aversion. I would feel defeated over and over by this. Um, So my strategy used to be, before retreats, I would go to a department store and go up to a counter where there were a lot of clocks, and for a long time I would hold the clocks up to my ear and try to find the quietest clock. And the salespeople would always think I was pretty crazy, you know, because I'd be there for at least an hour holding different clocks up, (laughs) trying to find the the perfect clock, (laughs) which to me that meant that it was very quiet. So I'd always think that I found the quiet clock. And then I usually would sit in my room on retreat, and I'd put the clock in the corner of the room under pillows and blankets. (laughs) And then I'd sit there, and at some point, <laughs> I'd get quiet enough that the sound would start, and you know the unpleasant it was would start, and you know the sweat would be pouring down my head, and I'd get really tired, and then the aversion would be so intense, and it would be like the sound would be like a you know a bomb going off inside my skull. It was incredibly unpleasant the whole process. So at some point, I saw that I either had to, you know, cope with and learn to cope with this unpleasantness of the sound or get defeated over and over again by this extreme aversion. And everybody has something like this. It might not be a clock for you, but there's always something that gets us on a retreat. Um, When we get overwhelmed by something like that over and over, then we're so afraid of that particular object You know, there's this fear that it's going to happen again and that we'll get defeated again. And the doubt will come that we can actually do it, that we can actually face that particular difficulty. If you can keep working at it, like I kept working with this over the years, and now, you know, this clock is a very loud (laughs) clock, by the way, and the clocks don't, you know, the sound, and if there's a version... It doesn't bother me, but they're usually, I don't notice any aversion anymore. So you can keep at something like that, even when it's difficult. Sometimes it'll seem impossible, or like the process is agonizingly slow. But you can do it. We learn to have faith in this process of learning how to overcome aversion or whatever. When we come on retreat, we come to deepen our human experience. In the process of doing this, Thomas Merton says that one struggles with the fact of death in oneself, trying to seek something deeper than death, because there is something deeper than death. And the office of the monk or the nun or the marginal person, the meditative person or the poet, is to go beyond death even in this life. This requires faith, but as soon as you say faith, in terms of the monastic and marginal existence, you run into another problem. 
faith means doubt. Faith is not the suppression of doubt. It is the overcoming of doubt. And you overcome doubt by going through it. He said that the person of faith who has never experienced doubt is not a person of faith. Consequently, the person who has to struggle to the depths of their being with the presence of doubt and to go through what some religions call the great doubt is to break through beyond doubt into a servitude which is very, very deep. He's talking about the surrender, this acceptance, which is very, very deep. It brings us very, very deep. Happiness and peace are possible. Something much deeper is possible. So we keep going. We see that the doubt is false, not real. But we're not suppressing it. But we see through the illusion of it. This means then that faith is based on your direct experience. It's through going through the doubt and overcoming it, which is very different from blind faith, which hopefully I'll have time for to talk about. If one can do this as one goes along one's journey, one will find that one will develop deeper and deeper faith. Often, as a person goes along their journey, there's deeper and deeper tasks and difficulties. And these are sometimes seem like tests. One can develop deeper faith from these challenges, more and more realization. So I've described several ways of how to work with doubt. One is to focus on the happiness of coming back to the present moment, of being with the truth of things just as they are, rather than focusing on how long you've been lost. The, the second is to reflect on what was happening before the doubt arose, to see the recipe for doubt. The third is to look at the thought process itself, to understand that they're just thoughts. It's just doubt. Understanding that they're not real, they're an illusion. When it really gets discouraging, it's important to understand that awakening is a process of opening. As I described the other night, when we open like a flower opens, we don't open just to the good stuff. We get to open to the whole show, which includes the joys and the sorrow. And again, I, it's no joke, this process. It's not, you know, something very um, superficial. This practice goes very, very deep. And sometimes life is very, very painful. I could come up with a million examples. Um, the, earlier this year, my father was in the hospital 
three times for a longer period of stay than usual. And he has a certain kind of illness that really can't be um, cured. So recently when I've talked with him, earlier this year when he was in the hospital, I would call him on the phone from Honolulu. And his voice sounded so discouraged. You know, it was that sense, you know, he's a warrior, so he, he, he fights hard. You know, but I could just sense this new kind of discouragement that I'd never heard in the voice before. You know, and that kind of illness, you know, that we're all capable of having, um, it's very, very difficult to face, to open to, you know, this, um, this body um, just isn't going to last. You know, we're all facing old age, disease, death. It's not an easy road. Sometimes the intensity of what we call dukkha or insecurity or unsatisfactoriness can get so intense for people when they're on a retreat. You might know that feeling when you want to just go into the bed and curl up in your sleeping bag and not come out for the rest of the day. This is intense dukkha usually that brings us to that point. I remember the last time I did a retreat at IMS, usually very late at night, I would get the sensations um, like somebody was putting a pin in every pore of my body. And it, was, it seemed simultaneous, but it was like somebody was just driving these pins in every pore. Uh, and there would be a certain point where I just couldn't stand it anymore. So I would decide, it's time for bed. The Buddha said that sleep is the world's greatest pleasure. <laughs> so I would think of this as a great idea. I would get up <laughs> and I'd go lay in the bed and I wouldn't be able to fall asleep. <laughs> That's when it really gets difficult. Um, whenever we get overwhelmed, by this kind of intensity of pain that I'm describing, of dukkha. Do you need this turned up? Could you turn it up a little? Whenever we're overwhelmed by any intensity, like I'm describing, of dukkha, usually an enormous amount of self-doubt will follow the defeat that we're assuming is a defeat. There'll be lack of courage or lack of confidence in ourselves. Sometimes the mind will just scream, you know, when it's up against this kind of intensity of dukkha, the intensity of unpleasantness that we're capable of experiencing as a human being. An important aspect of learning to work with this kind of intensity of difficulty is learning how to work with one's limits, of learning how to reach one's limits and work with one's limits. I had an operation about eight or nine years ago, and sometimes I think the intensity with which I experienced it with was because I had done about 
four or five months of a self-retreat before I had to go for this unexpected operation. The doctor assured me that it would be a 15-minute operation, and I didn't have health insurance, so I decided to do it in an emergency room, which was the first mistake. <laughs> but anyway, to make a long story short, um, the shots of anesthesia that the doctor used didn't work for some reason. Uh, and then the operation was an hour and 14 minutes rather than 15 minutes. Uh, and I can look back and laugh about it, but during the actual operation, you know, the intensity of unpleasantness was unbearable. And I watched every tick of the clock, um, and I felt um, quite defeated by the experience, mainly because I couldn't find any meaning in it. I couldn't find any meaning in why a human being would have to go through that kind of pain. And plus, just before I went for the operation, someone had given a talk here on uh, the Buddha when he was a bodhisattva in a former life. In this particular story, the bodhisattva was um, having both of his arms and legs sawed off, and he had perfect equanimity. (laughs) It was probably... (laughs) It was probably the wrong story to hear <laughs> right before I went in for the operation. So uh, given that I felt pretty down after this uh, operation, I had to really look at what this feeling of defeat was. And in some ways, it, it really taught me a lot. And it taught me that basically I wasn't allowing for, that I wasn't perfectly open to this pain. You know, I wanted to be perfect. I wanted to be perfectly equanimous. I wasn't allowing for where I was, my own limitation. There are some experiences that we have in our lives that are actually, in that moment, beyond our capacity to open to, at least fully open to. If you... Think about the pupil of your eye and what its function is. The pupil will open when there is enough light, and it closes when there's too much light. A Tibetan Lama said that meditation is becoming as sensitive as an eyeball. I like that description. Part of this process of becoming as sensitive as an eyeball is learning to work within one's limits, that our inner pupil, our inner pupil can open and close. It's important to know that it's skillful to back off. You know, it's wise and skillful to close down at times. I've often thought of doing workshops on closing the heart because there's so many <laughs> workshops on opening the heart. <laughs> we need to learn to open to not being able to open. When we become identified with our pain, when we go beyond our limits, 
we lose faith in ourselves and in everything. Rather than accepting our limits and shutting down when we need to, like the pupil of our eye, and resting. Resting means building your strength. It isn't a defeat. It's wise. But most of us have been very conditioned to think that, you know, backing off and resting is very, very weak. Uh, So it's difficult for us to learn how to soften when it's appropriate. It's not always appropriate to be soft and to back off. It's very appropriate to go for it, you know, when there's strength. But it's stupid, actually. It's very unwise to think that one has to stay open all the time if there's no strength. It, It makes us weaker because we get overwhelmed and then defeated. So when we learn to work with our limits, um, we open a little, close down, rest, open a little, close down, rest. And then we can develop a mind that's ready for anything. Slowly, gradually. At some point, you know, over time, we do develop this kind of acceptance of unpleasantness that I'm describing. It might be acceptance that a wound actually occurred in our life. We accept that it actually happened. Or it might be that we accept how to work with fear. Whatever it is. This acceptance comes when we have the inner strength to open. That inner strength develops the more we understand our limits. And with this strength will come the faith and the confidence. The faith will make space so that one can discover the meaning to the endless challenges that we face in our lifetime. When we actually can accept challenges, they are neither good or bad. They're just challenges. They're our best teachers. Which brings us to faith. I found on the airplane coming here from Honolulu, uh, it was either a Time or a Newsweek, uh, giving a review of this book called Disturbing the Peace. It's by Vaclav Havel. He's the president of Czechoslovakia, the new president of Czechoslovakia. And I was pretty astounded by this little quote that they put in the magazine, which um, encouraged me to find the book that Stephen bought me. And um, it's quite a book. This chapter that I'm going to read a bit from is called The Politics of Hope. I should probably say first that the kind of hope I often think about, especially in situations that are particularly hopeless, such as prison, I understand above all as a state of mind, not as a state of the world. Um, This man was in prison for quite a while because of his political beliefs, and he spoke out. (laughs) 
Either we have hope within us or we don't. It is a dimension of the soul and it's not essentially dependent on some particular observation of the world or estimate of the situation. Hope is not prognostication. It is an orientation of the spirit, an orientation of the heart. It transcends the world that is immediately experienced and is anchored somewhere beyond its horizon. I'm going to skip a bit. Hope in this deep and powerful sense is not the same as joy that things are going well or willingness to invest in enterprises that are obviously headed for early success, but rather an ability to work for something because it's good, not just because it stands a chance to succeed. The more unpropitious the situation in which we demonstrate hope, the deeper the hope is. Hope is definitely, definitely not the same thing as optimism. It is not the conviction that something will turn out well, but the certainty that something makes sense regardless of how it turns out. And he says that it comes from something transcendent. Wouldn't it be nice to have a president like that? We have to struggle to find this kind of hope. Children come in with an innocent kind of trust, but it's not based on life's experience. So we go through life's experience and get the, you know, the college of hard knocks and uh, pleasant things, joyful things, unpleasant things. And we struggle to find this kind of faith or hope this orientation of the heart. Sometimes it helps if we have a connection with nature. You know, sometimes people will find it very healing to either go out for a walk, go out to the trees, be in the rain, be in the sun, in whatever way you can. It's much simpler in that environment. It's easy to simplify one's mind. It's easy to learn in that environment how to surrender to the process of life because life is a process and we see that there's something much bigger than what we call I. Often people will feel a sense of oneness with things again. Their heart gets some moisture again. There's more hope. Faith includes trust, clarity, confidence, and devotion. Initially, faith is the initial inspiration. There are two kinds of faith in this particular tradition or in the Buddhist tradition. 
The first is called bright faith. This is when the mind is very bright and clear. And maybe this feeling of brightness will come from looking at a Buddha image. It might come from having any contact with an object of reverence that touches you. It might come from listening to a talk. The second kind of faith is called verified faith or mature faith. And this is the faith that comes out of wise consideration. It's based on one's own experience. This is why this practice is called insight meditation. The wisdom is coming from one's own direct experience. It's not coming from books. It's not coming from being told something. And it's not coming through from any figuring it out process, from any intellectual investigation. Any moment when our mind is free from mental torment, when we're free from the forces of greed and aversion, we realize that we're free in that moment. And there's more faith. Even if it's very brief, one can verify for oneself that purity of mind is actually possible. And it's through one's own personal experience that we come to believe this. There are said to be seven benefits of Vipassana. And the Buddha is said to have uttered this as the lion's roar. And this means that it was an unshakable conviction. The first is called purification of mind. One can purify one's mind. One can overcome sorrow and grief. One can overcome physical pain. One can overcome mental pain. One can have mental tranquility or calm. One can find real peace and happiness. One can overcome greed, hatred, and delusion. It may happen that you might be, say, doing the walking meditation, and you might notice pressure, heat, tingling thousands and thousands and thousands of times. And you might think, well, what does this have to do with understanding? You know, what, what, you know, <laughs> what are we doing this for, or what am I doing this for? And I'm sure you're all familiar with that feeling. And it might be that at one point you might notice pressure or heat or tingling or something and you'll understand that this is just this is this that we call my leg or my body is just this constantly changing transformation of elements there's no sense of separation or i there we're very happy in that moment we have a glimpse of the truth there's a deep kind of contentment 
it might be that that happens for one moment or some moments, and we feel again like something has really opened for us. And it's not that we figured it out, it's like, a, ah, <laughs> ah. Yeah. And it, it feels very pure, very profound, very nourishing. And then it might be that you, you are walking, you know, 10,000 more times, and it's just pressure, and it's just tingling, and what am I doing this for? Uh, and then it might be that there's another glimpse of understanding. This is how this happens. It takes time for the mindfulness and the understanding to sink in, drop by drop, moment by moment. And as this understanding sinks in, as it deepens, our faith will grow into a, a deep maturity. Even though we may have these incredibly clear glimpses, there can still be doubt. There is a very deep level of faith when it becomes unshakable. It's like the lion's roar of the Buddha. There are um, openings in this practice that can happen when there's no more doubt. It's that we've seen so clearly the experience is so deep and it's so pure that there is no more doubt. There's a wonderful saying that I like a lot. Once one has seen the peach blossoms, there is nothing more to doubt. This is when it's an unshakable, verified faith and it's experienced deeply and totally in our hearts. The opening of a flower is often a metaphor for enlightenment. This awakening means this total, true, deep opening. And this will wipe away the last traces of doubt. In my early childhood and through my childhood, I used to um, have to listen to the music my mother used to play very loudly. Luckily, it was good music. <laughs> and she played a lot of Billie Holiday over and over and over and over and over. So I know the words really <laughs> well. And there's one song that I remember, you probably have heard it, Everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die. <laughs> Everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die. It's a great song. Everybody wants to be free, but nobody wants to let go. We don't want to let go of craving aversion, selfishness, moment by moment. This is how it happens. To be able to let go requires the balance of understanding and faith and finding the inner trust to accept whatever's flowing downstream in our life. This ability to let go requires an inner change of heart are you willing to die meditating? Are you willing to let go of the I? 
moment by moment, are you willing to really see through the illusion of I? In one of Martin Luther King's great speeches, I think it was his greatest, he was in Selma, Alabama, and he was telling this group of people in a church very early on in the movement that he was involved in. He said to this group of people in the church, we all have the capacity to die. And I just, when I saw this um, film with this, I just, it would knock me out. It's like he was telling these people, you know, it's freedom is worth dying for. And they were just lit up. I mean, these people were light, bright, happy. You know, he, he gave them their spirits back. And I'm encouraging you to see that your spirit comes from being willing to die, meditating by really being willing to work hard and see through this illusion of I. It's possible. It brings happiness and freedom. Not easy, but well worth the effort. Let's sit for a few minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.